Let's go to God once more in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. God, as we have just prayed in song, we pray now again that, we would te- that you would teach us, that we would hear from you, that you would bestow faith, that we might love you. And so we pray your spirit now would help us during this time so that none of us We think of ourselves as being in the audience, but that all of us would be participating now in worship through the hearing of your word. Speak to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's almost college basketball season, so humor me. Many of you might remember back when UMass was a national powerhouse under John Calipari. But he was caught cheating. And so he ended up at Memphis. And the same thing happened again. Now, I have a good friend who would have never said anything positive about Calipari. And still he started coaching for his favorite team. And when he heard Calipari talk about restoring Kentucky greatness... And they started having success. My friend genuinely and sincerely believed Calipari changed. Now, I'm not saying Calipari didn't. But isn't that funny? Why are people like that? Have you ever noticed how in politics that one party candidate's bad idea may end up being their candidate's good idea later? We like to think our beliefs are unbiased and completely logical. But if we think hard enough or long enough, it seems like we're all too capable of being blindly inconsistent and hypocritical. We genuinely and sincerely believe what it seems we want to believe. Have you ever thought about why you believe who you believe? Why do you believe, not just what you believe, but who you believe? That's always an important question, but it's especially important when it comes to the Bible. Because the Bible claims to be God's word. It claims to have the truth about us, about God, about eternal judgment and salvation. So what's the Bible to you, and why? In our passage today, Jesus confronts those who don't believe him and reject his ministry, and he tells them why. And that's important for us to see. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 31. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 946. 946, and if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the, ver- are the chapters, the smaller numbers are the verses. Today we're looking at chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. Now for context, chapter 1, John the Baptist and his disciples all testify that Jesus is the Messiah. That's God's promised deliverer and king. And then in chapters 2 through 4, Jesus is presented as being able to bring the blessings of God's kingdom into this world. And all who believe in him can enter into that kingdom and enjoy eternal life. Chapter 5 starts dealing with the issues related to Jesus, not just being the Messiah, but being equal with God. And therefore, these chapters start to highlight the opposition to Jesus. After healing a man on the Sabbath and telling him to carry his mat, the Jews come after Jesus and essentially put him on trial. So in John chapter 5, verse 17, we get Jesus' response. And the word he uses is a legal term only used in the context 
of courtrooms. His answer or response, verse 17, is his legal defense. In verses 19 through 30, he argues that he's doing exactly what God the Father is still doing. And in verses 31 through 47, he calls witnesses to the stand. And here's what we ought to do with it. Believe God's testimony instead of seeking your own glory. Believe God's testimony instead of seeking your own glory. And I hope you can see what's implied there about why you may or may not believe. But if it's not clear now, I pray it will be by the end of the sermon. And to see this, we're going to look at this in two parts. First, a clear defense. That's in verses 31 through 39. And second, a surprising accusation. In verses 40 through 47. A clear defense... A surprising accusation. So first, a clear defense. Look at verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. The idea of truth is so important to God and his people that when God's crafting their constitution in the Old Testament... He includes in their top ten commands, thou shalt not bear false witness. And later in his law, to help his people arrive at the truth in really important matters like legal matters, he says in Deuteronomy 19.15 that one person's testimony isn't valid for prosecuting anyone. Every fact must be established by two or three witnesses. I just love that God built this into the life of his people and into their religious life. This is one of the things that makes Christianity unique among other world religions. Islam depends on the private visions of Muhammad. Mormonism depends on a private encounter with an angel. Buddhism depends on on one man's private experience of reaching enlightenment. But Jesus recognizes the problem with a testimony without a witness. It's not valid when the truth has such huge implications, like in court. Now, it's not just that Jesus' it's not just that Jesus' testimony isn't true when he makes claims about himself. He'll speak plenty of times in the gospels about his identity and his mission. But why should we listen to him all those other times? Well, it's because of what we read here. He's not dependent on his own testimony. He has a legal defense team. Verse 32. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The first witness called is John the Baptist. Verse 33, he testified to the truth. Now, John's a a valuable witness. He was more famous than Jesus during his day. But when Jesus is making divine claims about his role as the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus isn't dependent on human testimony. That's what he means there in verse 34 when he says, I don't receive human testimony. It means he doesn't depend on John for establishing this fact about his divinity or his role as Messiah. The the only reason he brings up John here is because of verse 34, so that you may be saved. He, He knows that many of them believe John's a prophet. That's why they sent messengers out to John to hear what he had to say. So for their own good, Jesus is reminding them of that testimony. You once believed him, what changed? For a while they basked in the glory of his light. He was not himself the light. He testified to the light. But here's the one that John claimed to be the son of God, and now they don't 
want the light. They do not receive him. They don't believe. So Jesus calls the three witnesses that he does depend on, starting in verse 36. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The works that Jesus does are the works that the Jews believe that only the Messiah would do or only that God can do. Like undoing the effects of the curse and saving a child from his deathbed in chapter 4. Or bringing in the blessings of the new creation like healing a man who was crippled in chapter 5. These works testify that the Father sent Jesus. They don't simply prove the existence of God. That's not the, the point of miracles. They're, they're signs. So miracles aren't just done for the sake of miracles either. They, they have a purpose. If Jesus does what only God can do, then the works are God's endorsement of him. And we have more than one eyewitness testimony to the validity of these works. They're the Gospels. And if you want a great book to help you see just how trustworthy these eyewitness accounts that we have in our hands are, then I want to encourage you to check out a book by Peter Williams called Can We Trust the Gospels? Coming to a church library near you very soon. Can We Trust the Gospels? Now, this witness, these, these works, it, it might raise a question about what we do with so-called miracle workers today. What do we do with people who claim to to do miracles. Well, first, we must remember that while the, the devil can, can't do signs, he certainly can do tricks. And so all of these works that we see or hear about should be investigated. And if you hear some so-called miracle worker just doing miracles for the sake of miracles and expanding their own ministry because of these miracles have no greater purpose, or if they're making claims that don't line up with God's word, you should question the validity of those miracles. God isn't behind those works. But the works that Jesus did were clearly communicating the fulfillment of promises that God has already made. In fact, verse 36 implies that there are more works for Jesus to accomplish. that are going to line up with his salvation. And when Jesus dies on the cross and three days later rises from the dead, that's a public, very public historical endorsement by God the Father of all. That Jesus said and did. Which is why Jesus says in verse 37. The father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time. And you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you. Because you don't believe the one he sent. So unlike Moses. These people have not heard God's voice. Unlike Jacob. They have not seen God's form. And unlike the psalmist, God's word doesn't dwell within them. Why? Because you don't believe the one he sent. Jesus is making everything hang on faith in him. And it's a damning indictment for these Jewish hearers. You don't really follow Moses, even though you have the words he heard from God written down. And you're not really true Israelites, even though you descended from Jacob. Nor are you real worshipers. Because if you were, then you'd believe in the one God sent. The Father is testifying through the testimony of the works and His Word. Every part of the scripture that they so highly prize as God's people should lead them to Jesus. And it doesn't. Why? That's the question. Why? What's the problem? Well, it clearly isn't the testimony of the scriptures. Look at verse 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Oh, the irony here. They search the scriptures because they believe the key to eternal life is in them, and that's good. In one sense, the key to eternal life is in them. But they think the more you read it, 
the more life you have. Wear it around your neck. Write it on your house. Do what it says and you'll have eternal life. But that misses the point. Imagine that we're all at some mountain getaway in New Hampshire. And I lead you to a large window with this beautiful view of the peaks that make up the presidential reign. And I say, come, you've got to see this window. Isn't it beautiful? And you say, let's measure it. Find out what it's made of. Maybe we can build one just like it back in Providence. That misses the point. And they're looking at the scriptures like that. Looking at them like they're the key to eternal life. But really, they're the window showing us the key to eternal life. The scriptures help us see Jesus. So that's a key principle for how we should read the Bible. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, we read that Jesus is with his disciples and says to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It's comprehensive. All the Bible points to Jesus. And so when you study the Bible, you should look for Jesus. He's there in the most boring and dry parts that you don't think has, have anything to do with him. And you just think, man, I'm so glad that God got rid of these rules. Isn't it great that we don't have to do this anymore? Don't think that. Don't think that. That's, that's reading the Bible about you. With you at the center. No, read it again. Look for Jesus. And if you want help doing that, I strongly recommend another book called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Or when you read the New Testament, look at how it uses the Old Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Parr argues that Jesus is the goal of the law. He's what it points to. But these Jewish leaders don't see that. Not because they neglect the scriptures, because they're, but because they're not reading the Bible as it's meant to be read. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. We hope this helps you read the Bible. But, but please don't do this with God's testimony and hear it as it's not meant to be heard. You know how people can take short clips of, of something that somebody else says out of context and make it sound like that person's saying something really horrible? But then if you hear that same clip in, in, in the context of everything else that that person said and understand that context, you can see what they were saying and even agree with them? Now, Sadly, I think many people, comfortable with where they are, not wanting to change, just drop into parts of the Bible, not understanding the context or knowing how all the Bible can be put together as one story about Jesus, just bring out a clip of it and say, that's why I don't believe. And they reject God's testimony about his son. You know, one of the best things for my faith has been able to see how the whole Bible fits together as one glorious story about Jesus from beginning to end. It's this amazing book that's consistent over many different authors over many different years. And not only is it consistent within itself, but it's consistent with history. Okay? The Bible itself is a witness to God's sovereign power and influence in the world to bring about his plan of salvation. It should be trusted. And part of the reason for that is because Jesus came. God sent him into the world to redeem people from sin just as he promised. Because ever since our first parents rebelled against God, we've all been rebels and we all deserve God's wrath. But when Jesus came, he lived a perfect life on our behalf and he died the death that we deserve so that by believing in him or trusting him, we are united with him and God considers us righteous in his sight. That's how our sins can be forgiven. 
It's because Jesus rose from the dead, signifying that he had paid the penalty in full, that we are completely forgiven. And so, therefore, we too will one day live in a perfect world where we are finally redeemed and the world is made new. The whole Bible testifies to that truth about Jesus. But they're reading God's law as if it's the end game. It's not a teacher or a guide or a witness. It's the end. You see, the giving of God's law to his people was meant to be more about finding a relationship with God than it was about fulfilling a duty. So imagine going on a date where you looked good, smelled good, ate well, drove well, and someone asks, How was your date? And you start mentally checking off all those boxes. And you think, yeah, I had a good date. And say nothing or think nothing of the person on the other end. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense, right? A good date is about what you experienced with that other person and whether or not you want to go back out with them again. But this is the kind of thing that they were doing with the law and God. They're not thinking about the person on the other end of the law, the person that it points to. They're just checking off boxes. Did we keep it? It's the goal. Because honestly, it's more about them at this point than about God. It's about how they look among other people. Whether or not they have a reason for God to sort of pat them on the back spiritually. At this point, it's also very much about preserving their Jewish way of life. And if you call yourself a Christian, you can miss out on a relationship with God for very similar reasons. We can do this with our Bible reading. I got up early each day this week, read a chapter a day, even had time for prayer this week. Check, 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 I'm good. Or it can be more about culture for you. Don't want to be associated with that culture. I go to church every Sunday. Don't do anything bad during the week. Check, check, check. I'm a good Christian. But what about Jesus? What about the relationship? Your affections for him. Your obedience to him. Your longing for him. Your work for him. Your love for his people. His bride. The church. What about your relationship? Do you see Jesus? Christian? Or are you just looking at what you do? It's, it's this view of the scriptures that led them to reject Jesus. They didn't accept him as the source of life and salvation. They trusted in the law. They trusted in their connection to Abraham, who had a promise. In the presence of the temple. All good things from God. But those things don't save or justify and, so, and, and yet they trusted in them rather than in the person and work of Jesus. What about you? Is it your good works? Is it your church? Is it your doctrine? That one, I think, is especially just potentially dangerous for, for some of us or people in our circles. Obviously, you have to have right doctrine. It's necessary for faithfulness and trusting in Christ alone. But it's not doctrine that saves you. It's who it's about. And yet, I'm afraid that sometimes that's how people judge themselves to be good Christians or whether or not others are good Christians. It's by their doctrine. Now, the question is still, why? Why is all this a temptation? Why is this the kind of thing that's a struggle for people like us? Because each witness here should be compelling. And certainly it's trustworthy. But why are we so prone to missing the point? Why aren't these people listening to these witnesses and rejoicing in the presence of Jesus? 
instead of trying to kill him. Why? Well, this leads us to the second part of our text. A surprising accusation. A surprising accusation. Look at verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Their problem with the way that they read the scriptures isn't an intellectual problem. It isn't the quality of the testimony, but the heart of the hearer. But you are not willing to come to me so you may have life. Now, why aren't they willing? Well, the answer starts in verse 41 with a comparison to Jesus. I do not accept glory from people. Sounds like a strange thing for Jesus to say. He's the Messiah. The king of kings, our creator, worthy of worship. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, it becomes clear, more clear in verse 42. But I know you, that you have no love for God within you. So verse 41 isn't about whether or not Jesus is worthy of receiving glory from people, but about where he seeks to receive glory. He doesn't seek to please people because that would make him a servant of people out of, out of a love for their praise, accepting glory from them. Jesus came to do the will of the Father and only the will of the Father. Think back to verse 19. Truly, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. The love that Jesus has for the Father makes him seek the glory that comes from the Father. Love for the Father leads him to seek glory from the Father. So the reason they don't come to Jesus for life is because there's no love for the Father in them. There's no love for God in them. What Jesus sees is a love for self. That's why they're happy to accept glory from one another. It's not really about God and the praise that he'll give to us on the final day. It's about the pleasure that they get from receiving praise from other people right now. They love to stand on the street corners and pray so that all can hear them. Right? They love to give so that people can see. They love to show on their faces that they are fasting so that people can see. People love receiving praise from people. We love it. We should acknowledge that. People love praise from other people. Because we love the self. Indwelling pride makes life all about us. So flattery is a powerful tool in the hands of our enemies or people who would use us because what people think about us or say about us or do for us feeds that pride this is why shame culture is so powerful but the wisdom of proverbs 27 6 says the wounds of a friend are trustworthy but the kisses of an enemy are excessive we need that wisdom and warning because that's not normally how we act or think. Not naturally, right? Our enemies flatter us for their own personal gain and we love them for it. Our friends say hard things because they love us and we hold a grudge against them. Or we avoid them because we don't want to hear the truth from people who love us. Because we love and believe people who make us feel good. 
R.C. Sproul said the way to get a rich, famous, and busy person to take time out of their schedule and come speak at your event is to simply promise an honorary degree or a monument to them. They'll come. Because people love it. Know that I'm important. Know that I'm a good person. Everybody, everywhere, must see my signal and know that I'm good. Don't think bad of me. We seek glory from people. Jesus doesn't. Jesus seeks the glory that only comes from God, the Father. He isn't driven or led by a desire for that kind of honor from people. He's worthy of it. We should most definitely give him praise and live for his praise. Because, verse 43, he comes in the name of the Father. But there's no love for God in these people. So they don't give him that honor. And yet they readily accept glory from one another. So if some other person wants that honor, they'll readily give it to them. They'll praise that man or woman's name as we're all prone to do. There are plenty of celebrities or peers that we're happy to accept and praise. We'll seek some sort of fulfillment in them. You just think about the symbiotic relationship between a political candidate and their supporters and the praise that just echoes back and forth from the platform. Now, some of the passion that's surrounding this election season is from many candidates and voters seeking life in this world, glory in this world. It's about them. Few in this world seek the glory that comes from God. And that is what keeps them from coming to Jesus. He comes in the Father's name, seeking the glory of the Father. And spiritually rebellious people have no interest in that, which means no one's naturally willing to come to Jesus. Despite what many people think, real Christians don't believe because it's somehow self-serving. Like it, it works for us. And it simply fits into our own personal biases and comfort. That is not why real Christians believe. Now, maybe you're here and you're a doubting Christian. Maybe I messed you up in the introduction and you're thinking, well, why do I believe Christianity? And this is, this is, this is now something you're questioning. You know, why do I believe this? And you're afraid that maybe just like everyone else, you believe something because of your environment. But according to the Bible... It's a miracle that anyone truly believes and accepts true Christianity or lives as a faithful Christian. It's not about us. It's about God. There are versions of Christianity out there that do make it about us. And that is easy to understand. But not faithful Christianity. Being a faithful Christian in the world means you will suffer. And the reward only comes after you die. Listen, after, after pastoring for so many years, after being a Christian myself, if this wasn't true and the Spirit didn't work, we'd all leave the faith. I believe that. Faithful Christians are spiritual outcasts in this world. The, the Christian life is about self-denial. Read church history. okay? Normal Christianity is living with some form of persecution. It's hard. Now, yes, I do believe God's ways are best for this life. And I think being a Christian makes me a happy husband and father, and it gives me peace and hope in this world. But not without costs. It doesn't come without personal costs to myself regularly. I have to die daily. But if the costs of believing in Jesus are too great to come to him, then it's because the love of self is greater than the love of God. That's what Jesus is saying. You prefer the praise of people over the praise of the only God. According to Jesus, that's the heart condition that explains why you don't believe 
the witnesses about him. Listen, you can't be a Christian without being humble. You have to be willing to be misunderstood and thought poorly of by people in this world, all because your love for God is greater than your love for self. And you have to be okay with grace. And if you're not humble, you're not okay with grace. But clearly, there's no room in heaven for the self-righteousness that comes from keeping the law or coming up with some other form of being good enough for God. These Jews were devout people religiously and moral. They were better than you and I are at checking off all the moral and religious boxes that we like to keep. Their commitment would have put many of us to shame. But without love for God, their religious devotion is nothing more than a cleaned up version version of selfish ambition. It's the love of God in us that's living and active in our lives that, that God accepts. And that love is certainly a moral love. It's an obedient love. But it springs from real faith in Jesus. From believing the testimony about him for the glory that will one day come from God. It's about him. It's about seeking his pleasure in all things. Apart from that heart, it's all a religious show created by pride in the person who needs to feel better about themselves or better about than, than others. This is the hypocrisy that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for. It's what's keeping them from believing in him. Now, all of this is really practical and instructive. Because it means that when our hearts are full of pride, selfish ambition, or the love of this world, and the things of this world, there's no room for the word of God to dwell in us. Our lives are cultivating hearts of unbelief. Or or cultivating spiritual ears that can hear. I've sat with people who complain that they get nothing out of reading their Bible. And then we talk, and I learn that they're prioritizing their work over their soul. Or that they're struggling with pornography. Or some other secret sin. Maybe you're here today, and you're wondering, why don't you ever get anything out of church? Or why does God seem so distant to me? Well, start asking questions. Maybe find someone else in church you can talk to about this and get counsel, because it can be complicated. But it might not be so complicated. Is there unrepentant sin in your life? You can ask about whether or not you're really depending on God's grace for your acceptance with Him. Or am I trying to earn it? Am I making life all about me? Am I receiving His word as true and therefore acting on it with faith and repentance? Or maybe it's because you refuse to accept some part of the Bible and refuse to truly humble yourself before God. Look, they don't receive Jesus because there's no love of God within them. And if you have unrepentant sin in your life or unrestrained pride, it's not going to be surprising or it shouldn't be surprising that you struggle with unbelief. But when the Word dwells in our hearts, And there's a love for Christ, an awareness of his grace towards you as a sinner, and a longing for his future kingdom when he will finally make everything right. Well, then the word is believed. So if you don't believe, it's not just a disagreement. It's not the kind of thing where you can say, well, I'm glad that's true for you or that works for you, but not for me. Rejecting Jesus is fundamentally a heart problem. It's not just a wrong disposition. It's an evil and rebellious disposition marked by self-righteousness or self-rule or self-praise. But regardless of which one of those it is or all, to reject Jesus is to call God a liar and seek your own glory. And that makes you guilty before him. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. 
Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Now, that can't be received well, can it? (laughs) Of course they believe Moses. They're living to very stringent, extra rules they came up with in order to keep the law of Moses. But of course, because there's no love for God in them, they're missing the point. We know that if they were to read Moses rightly, then they'd understand the law has always meant to be a pointer to a greater prophet than Moses. The the book of Deuteronomy is actually the second giving of God's law. And it's clear that the law isn't meant to be the final word from God to his people. If it was, then salvation would come through the law. That would be it. There's no need to give the law again a third time after the second time. There's no need for an extra word that salvation would come through. If 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 you fail, just go back and try again. But in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from, uh, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. There's another word. Beyond the law. So if they believed Moses, they would have heard the law of Moses testifying to them of a greater sacrifice for sin. A more final word of salvation. And when Jesus shows up and John the Baptist is testifying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These guys would have been like Philip who who goes and finds Nathanael and says in chapter 1 verse 45, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph. And when these people saw the works of Jesus testifying that the blessings of God's kingdom are breaking into this world, undoing the curse of sin, they would have listened to him. But instead, they don't listen to Moses. All they can see is law. The epitome of right relation, or right religion in their eyes. Law. And Jesus insists, that's a witness to me. So if scrupulous adherence to the law brings people to hope for salvation in the law itself and to reject the Messiah that it points to, then Moses himself will serve as their prosecutor. I don't know that Jesus could have said something more shocking and offensive at this point in his argument. Just scan the passage with me, starting in verse 31, and look at how the word accuse just jumps out. Verse 31, testify, testimony. Verse 32, testifies, testimony. 33, testified. 34, testimony. 36, testimony, testify. 37, testified. 38, believe. 44, believe. 46, accuse, accuser. All this testimony, testify, believe, believe, ends in a surprising accusation. Because the accuser isn't Satan, who has no power over believers, but Moses, on whom they've set their hope. You see, whereas They might look to Abraham as their father. The Jews looked to Moses as their advocate. Moses was a mediator. He mediated the law to God's people. He stood in the gap and interceded for God's people when they rebelled. So it's shocking when Jesus says, Moses testified about me, and because you don't accept me, he's your accuser. The very place where they put their hope. Where do you put your hope? I think many today might say science. And that's interesting because God's word tells us to observe all that the Lord has made. We're actually commanded 
to look at the order of the universe, the order of the seasons, the circle of life. We're, we're, we're called to look at science as testimony that there is a God, that he's powerful and wise, and he's worthy of worship. Where do you put your hope? Now, more than shocking when Jesus says this, it should be terrifying. Because Jesus is talking like he's the greater prophet, like Moses. The mediator of a new covenant, like Moses, was the mediator of the old. And Moses wasn't always accepted. He too was rejected by his own people. And number 16 records a famous rebellion against Moses led by the sons of Korah. And God considered opposition to Moses as rebellion against himself. So you know what happened? The ground split open and swallowed Korah and his family. Fire came out and consumed the people who had joined in the rebellion. And the next day, when people grumbled and complained about God's judgment, he sent a plague among them. That was Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the prophet Moses spoke to. If you oppose Jesus, if you don't believe him, then God is just in his judgment and he will most certainly oppose you. So here we are at the end of Jesus' defense. He's clearly on trial with these Jewish leaders. But after calling all of his witnesses to the stand, the tables turn. And suddenly they're on trial. And it's not Jesus who accuses them, but Moses. It's like their own lawyer representing them, telling them of the way the law works, turns to them and says, you're guilty. God, the final judge, will execute his judgment on you for rejection of his son. And many self-righteous people in this world who virtue signal to the point of sitting in the judgment seat themselves and condemn others, including Christians, will find themselves surprised on the day of judgment just like this. Because there's a reason behind who and what we believe. And that reason is located in every one of our hearts. It's a spiritual problem that should make every one of us feel our need for God's mercy and his transforming grace. And Christian, that's the only way you'll make it. This life is a fight for faith. The love of this world, the the need for affirmation from people, the pleasures of sin, the poison of indwelling pride makes coming to Jesus a daily battle. Every one of us needs to take advantage of all the means of grace. Don't let anything like sleep get in the way of Sunday. Build into your calendar regular fellowship with other believers. Prioritize the Bible and much prayer. And if you do, you'll know the power of God's grace in your life, and you'll persevere by that grace. I mean, praise God that he looks on people like us, dead in our sin, hostile to his reign, competing with his glory, and he loves us and shows us mercy. He gives us new life by the Spirit and ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are receptive. That's the only way that I ever began walking into church ready to sing. It's because God loved me and opened my eyes and ears, or to this day I'd still refuse him. As I once did. Maybe you're here again and you're not a Christian. And you're wondering, how will I ever believe? I hope you can see that your refusal to believe or accept Christ doesn't confuse us or, or the Bible. We, we get it. It will benefit you if you see that too. I know this might be a weird thing to say, but given that you don't believe right now, if you truly want to know the truth, 
read his word with an open mind, keep coming to church, and genuinely pray, God, if you're there, help me to understand and believe. And what do you have to lose by praying that? Nothing. But according to the Bible, by not praying that, everything. The good news for all of us is that when Moses and Aaron interceded on behalf of those who rejected them, the plague stopped. And Jesus says, though the world did not receive him, though we have all lived in rebellion against him, all who believe will not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 40 doesn't say that you can't come, but that you're not willing. You can be saved. Pray for help and be humble and come to Jesus. So in closing here, let me just challenge us all with one more witness. An encouragement here. After Jesus is raised from the dead as a final endorsement from God on his life and work, he appears to many people and says this in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you believe God and seek his glory, then you have a testimony. And you're called to be a witness in this world. And so your life should testify to the truth of the gospel, to the reality of the Holy Spirit, to the power of God's word. And we're called to do that together. We're a community of people who believe. And according to Ephesians 3.10, our loving unity with one another is supposed to display the glory of God in this world. So if you believe that Jesus has died for you and that he's made intercession for you before the judge as a sinner, well then be a witness. Be a part of displaying this larger witness of the church. And let's live out our faith in the gospel together by seeking to live lives for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We are so in need of it. Even as we sing, God, we pray that you would show grace to sinners and receive our imperfect worship. And as we go from this place, God, help us to live for you in every part of our lives. That you might receive glory and that we might find our joy in you by living that way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.